Relationship Psych, the podcast, helping you design the relationship you want. With couples therapy costing a pretty penny, Relationship Psych gives you access to couples therapy insights without spending a dime. Tune in for discussions on communication, managing conflict, recovering from infidelity, attachment, and more. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist and couples therapist. A few of my favorite things are my husband, grapes, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Simply by listening, you're going to get tools to help you and your partner create a loving and harmonious relationship that can withstand the test of time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek out a local couples therapist in your area. Welcome back to Relationships Like the Podcast. Today, we have an author of a brand new book, I think it's new anyways, uh, that we're going to hear a little bit about how this can help relationships. We have Dr. Jennifer Gutman with us today, who's got her doctorate in clinical psychology from Long Island University. She began her career working in a homeless shelter in New York, and she found that traditional protocols, as I have found, sometimes um, put restrictions on how do you treat people. She fought to ensure that every resident could meet with her as often as they needed, eagerly working day and night to fulfill requests, and she had this desire to reach more people. So she started lecturing and opened up her own private practice. Today, she uses a blend of cognitive behavioral techniques with her own core methods, which she's refined over the last 30 years with her clients, and a lot of these have really allowed her to impact thousands of clients from different walks of life, and we're going to hear about some of them as we talk about her new book as well. Uh, the new book is Beyond Happiness, The Six Secrets of a Lifetime Satisfaction. So let's learn about how do we do that? How do we build that? So welcome to the podcast. Super excited to have you today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about, so you wrote this book, Beyond Happiness. What um, prompted you to want to write a book and to put this message out in the world? Well, I wanted to write a, a, the book both because of my individual clients, but also because of my clients that are couples. So why don't I talk about the couples a little bit? Since this is a relationship podcast, I'll talk about sure. the couples. Um, I had a lot of couples coming into my office telling me that they felt like they were failing at being happy in their relationships. And I felt like what they were talking about was because they were seeing in movies and social media that couples are supposed to be happy all of the time, constantly, without a break. And they felt like they were failing at that, except that you can't be happy in a relationship all the time. Happiness is an emotion. It comes and goes. It's not meant to be long lasting. And happiness, because it's an emotion and it comes and goes, it's instigated or dependent on the outside world, something happening in the outside world. Somebody sends you a surprise text or they ask you on a surprise date or give you a surprise compliment. And I wanted them to understand that if you turn the conversation around and look in a relationship for safety and security or and turn that into looking for satisfaction, then that's something that is sustainable and achievable. If you're not looking in the relationship for the dopamine fix or the clickbait of a compliment, then you can search for something that is long lasting in a relationship. The book is about six techniques that you can look for in a relationship that will give you that sense of safety and security, not just in a love relationship, but in all relationships. And then I had fewer and fewer clients focus over focusing on what they were seeing in the media and in social media and feeling like they were failing at the relationships and instead turn it around and feel like they were being successful at it. Wow, that's so many good points, right? Like on TV, in the media, we do hear like, be happy. And we see that like everything is perfectly choreographed in TV and movies. And maybe you see a fight or a blip that happens in a relationship, but then they get back together and they're happy again. And you can look at that and be like, wow, why don't I have that? Or is that how it's supposed to be all the way through a relationship? And I mean, certainly if, you, if you're so lucky, you probably get some of that at the beginning in many cases, not all cases, but and then it ebbs and flows and changes over the lifespan of a relationship. Exactly. So. That's what a relationship is. A re yeah. 
relationship is about how it organically changes over the course of it and not about the honeymoon phase right in the beginning. And a relationship is about how you navigate and negotiate through the more difficult times and how that helps you feel safer and more secure together because you've handled some of the more challenging, difficult parts of life together, not about how you've handled the, you know, all of the fun moments where you're, you know, in the moonlight dancing in the rain. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. But yeah, you know, every moment is going to be that. And I like what you said, like, can we shift from happiness to satisfaction and how do we find satisfaction in our long-term partnership that maybe isn't going to be something you see in a two-hour blockbuster movie maybe you do in the rare ones but that's usually i mean that's not going to sell tickets exactly exactly yeah. okay well let's start to look at one of the points in your book is avoiding assumptions to learn to have agency in any situations that have acting on what you imagine people are thinking or feeling about you, reducing our innate negativity bias. So how come, I think that's like the first of your six secrets. How come you put avoiding assumptions as, as the first and why is that so important? I put them all six in a specific order because they build on each other. And okay. if we can't stop avoiding assumptions in any relationship in life, then we're kind of done <laughs> avoiding and avoiding. So avoiding assumptions is definitely the first place to start because we do spend a lot of time anticipating what we think somebody is thinking, what somebody's going to do. And in fact, how we think we're supposed to feel. So we were just talking about how we believe we're supposed to feel in a relationship. And that in and of itself is an assumption. And that impacts how we are in relationships. And besides that, then we also over worry and overread how we think that another person is thinking and what we think they're going to do. And that causes us to engage in behaviors that we never thought we would do. An example of that would be so many people, how many of us can relate to not thinking we would ever snoop on a significant other's phone or go through something in their homes. And people engage in these behaviors because they're looking for clues about what somebody else is thinking or doing because they get a sense from a nonverbal that something is going on that they don't know about. And they're looking for clues about that. Anytime somebody feels vulnerable, they start rushing in to try to pick up on micro expressions about what something means instead of pausing and waiting for actual evidence that would convince a jury of their peers that something is actually going on. Mm -hmm. I, I try to suggest to clients that just because you think something, it doesn't make it so. But we engage in a lot of behaviors as if it was so, even though it isn't. But waiting un until you can convince somebody is true. There's four techniques that I suggest to people that they engage in. The first is if you start to feel anxious or sad or um, afraid in a relationship, try to pause and wait. And the second is ask yourself, do you general, genuinely know, genuinely know what your partner is thinking? And when I say that, genuinely know what your partner is thinking. Do you have evidence that you know what your partner is thinking? The only way you would have evidence is if they said it, not because you're guessing. Mm. The third step is, do you genuinely know what your partner is going to do? Genuinely know, meaning evidence of what your partner is going to do. Again, not just because you think it, it must be so. And then the fourth step is, do you have, you know, with this evidence, could you can what you believe is evidence? Could you convince a jury of your peers that they would agree with you all a whole jury? You have to convince a whole jury, not one of them, not two of them, the whole all of them. That you have enough evidence to go to your partner and say, I'm concerned about this in our relationship, because when you go to a partner with not a lot of evidence, it can put them on the defensive. It makes them feel like they're not a good partner. They haven't made you feel safe enough. They haven't made you feel secure enough. And that can be distressing to a partner because they're trying to make you feel safe and secure enough. And so you want to make sure you're going to them with actual evidence that this is what you feel is going on. Once you have that, then you can have a mindful and transparent conversation about what your concerns are and then navigate through how you're going to handle it together. Right. And I, I like this happens, I work with couples and this happens to me daily where 
um, what a really common pattern I see is someone is like, I think you think, (laughs) and then they usually give a negative attribution about what they think their partners think. So for example, you were home, you got home late yesterday. This means you don't care about me and you don't take our relationship seriously. Now, when you, that's a pretty negative attribution because someone was late. And I mean, I get it. I've probably had the same thought when my partner was late and I'm upset. Um, makes sense to me how people get there. But what happens, what I see all the time happening is if, if I tell my partner you're late and that means you don't care about me, that negative attribution feels like a criticism. And you're like, and then they get caught up on not that you were hurt, that they were late or not that you don't feel cared about. They get hurt being like, that's ridiculous. It doesn't mean that. And so it starts off this kind of criticism defensiveness cascade that a couple gets stuck in really fast. It- Exactly. And then, and then the partner's like, I'm trying so hard to take care and be a good partner. And how did I get here when I didn't do any, like I didn't, you know, intentionally do anything. Um, And so that's why I think that it's important to ask yourself a lot, like what, because a lot of, we bring a lot of our histories to the table too. And we have to be mindful about what of our history we're bringing to the table when we're making all these assumptions, because our lens has something to do with how we're viewing all of the behaviors that we're looking at in our partners as well. And we have to take some responsibility for that, that it's not all just them that we're seeing. We're seeing them and all of the history of our, of our own past that we're bringing to the table too. Oh, such a good point. And that makes me think like with the issue of time, like if I grew up in a family system where like you had to be on time, everything is regimented, you're on time. If someone is late, that's going to be more disrespectful and from that lens of that system that you're raised in. But on the other hand, if you grew up in a family system where like seven o'clock means 6.55, could mean seven, could mean 7.15, but those are all variations of seven o'clock, then being home at 7.05 or 7.15 isn't an issue from for that person because they grew up in a different family system with different sets of beliefs and values. And so I love that kind of notion of thinking about, well, that behavior that we're seeing in that moment is filtered through that lens of what we learn from our family was origin, uh, you know, the schools we went to, our friends, our peers, our life experiences, and then we judge the behavior based on what we know. But through two different sets of experiences, we could judge being late to mean oh my gosh, you don't care about me. You're disrespectful. Or it could also just mean, Hey, I was actually on time. I was close. Exactly. Exactly. And then what happens is because you're talking at cross purposes and you're not talking about your history, you're just talking about the moment. People don't even understand that. Like, well, we probably should go back and talk about what it was like growing up or what our past experiences are instead of just stay in this moment. And maybe we would understand each other better. Totally. So a lot of times in relationships, people start to like, I mean, you're around your partner all the time. So you start to read each other. Mm-hmm. When is reading each other a helpful relationship behavior? And when's it more of a maladaptive or less helpful relationship behavior? Reading your partner is, is by and large, not a helpful behavior because when you try to read each other, you overread micro expressions, non-verbals, things that don't have enough information in them. And that's the problem. The only thing that actually has information in it is information. And information is what actually your partner is saying, not what you believe or guess that they're saying from, from misinformation. We believe that we can overread people because as children, we have learned that maybe we overread our family members. You you know, when we're children, we think that, oh, I did this small behavior and I got a positive reinforcement from my parent for this. And, And so we go out into the world thinking we're really good guesstimators, but we're not really good guesstimators. We just think that we are. And so because of that, because through a child's lens, oh yes, I did this and I got that for this. That's our interpretation of what it was like as children. And so because of that, then we're like, okay, great. I can do this behavior so well. I'm an expert at guesstimating. We believe we can do that with our partners as well, but really nobody is that nobody, it doesn't matter who you are, can 
get into somebody's head and know what that micro expression or nonverbal actually means. I challenge mm-hmm. clients sometimes they'll tell me what a, a nonverbal or a micro expression is. And we can go back and forth and debate like, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this, it could be that, because there's so many ways, again, based on history, what a nonverbal or a micro expression could potentially mean. So overreading is dangerous. It's much better to just come out and ask what, what, what's going through your mind? What are you, what are you thinking? Uh, as opposed to just, as opposed to just guessing it gets into four kinds of there's cognitive behaviors. Talk about thinking errors. There's four major thinking errors, magnification, minimization, fortune telling, all or none thinking fortune telling is, is a type of assumption that people make it can cause people to ruminate disproportionately on uh, on an assumption and turn something that could be potentially neutral into something negative. An example of that would be that, you know, you have a fight with your partner and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, this, um, because I brought up this, if I bring up this topic, we're going to get into a fight. Like anytime I bring up this topic, it's going to turn into a fight. That would be you know, fortune telling. And when you make a guess like that, again, it could be about your history. It could be because you look at a micro expression on your partner's face. Like if this is at this time, if I bring up a topic, I'm going to get a bad reaction. That's fortune telling because you're Mm. guessing that you're going to get a bad reaction because of how their demeanor seems. And it's the same with something like all or none thinking, you know, my partner never notices me, even though there are times that your partner definitely notices you. It's just you're filtering in only the times when you feel like they haven't noticed you. Um, magnification is when you are only looking at some small negative event and catastrophizing it. And an example of that would be we had a fight and now the whole rest of the weekend is ruined. An example of that would be an example of how you're you're taking a fight and then saying, uh, combination of catastrophizing and fortune telling, you know, yes, we did have a fight and now I'm fortune telling that the rest of the weekend is ruined. Any one of these assumptions though, then has a negative impact on the relationship overall, because you're, you're polluting all of the next things that happen afterwards by through your thinking. Right. So when you start to see, like, I'm trying to think, we'll just go back to the time one. So my partner's late and I'm thinking that means they don't care about me. Would that be magnification? Or if I was just change that a little bit, be like, they never, they're never respectful. They're never on time. Then we felt like all or nothing. Right. So, right. So they, right. So my, if my, you said my partner is late, they don't care about me would be all or none thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, my partner is late. Um, they're going to be late. They're always going to be late would be some combination of on and thinking and fortune telling. Mm-hmm. They can be, I mean, there'd be two of them, which is why sometimes they coalesce together. But again, they set up a polluted relationship because then the minute the partner comes in the door, you are already mentally in a negative, in a negative space because the self-talk you've had about your partner is negative and you're, you're set up for a already set up for a bad night. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So like they come in the door. And you know, maybe before they've got home, it's like 710 and they're coming up, seven, they get home at 715. By 710, you're already angry. Mm-hmm. And you're like, they're never on time. They totally don't care about me. And let's imagine you catch it. And you're like, okay, maybe I've got a thinking error here. Then what do you do? Once you've noticed you have a thinking error, what's the next step? Great. I love that question. Okay. So let's say you notice that you have a thinking error. Then what? What I would suggest to people is that, okay, I notice that this is a thinking error. I don't have enough evidence that this is true. There's something called a thought stopping technique that I love. It's a rubber band technique. This you actually can see in the movies. That is a positive thing that you can see in the movies as opposed to all of the romantic things you can see in the movies. And what it is, is you put a rubber band on your wrist, you snap it, you can put a hair tie or rubber band on your wrist, you snap it, you tell yourself to stop, you remind yourself that it's a thinking error. And then you try to tell yourself to go to a better place in your mind, something more positive about the relationship to balance out the negative. So you would do a combination of snapping the rubber band, telling yourself to stop that it's a thinking error. Then you would tell yourself to balance the negative thought. So when you would say to yourself this, you know, he's late, he's 
always late, you would ask yourself, is that true? Is he really always late? Uh, and then you would come up with times when, no, he's not always late. Last week he was home on time or whatever. So you'd be doing a combination of snapping the rubber band, coming up with balanced thinking, and then trying to tell yourself to give him the grace to see what, ask him like, you know, what went on today, you know, what happened and see what he says when he comes in, try to have a mindful conversation, reminding yourself that you don't want the the rest of the night to blow up either. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the ways to balance it so that it cannot go, the whole night doesn't go down a rabbit hole. And those skills, like, well, I simple in concept, right? Like rubber band, balance your thought. I know how hard that can be in real time when you're like trying to think differently, but you're so entrenched in that thinking area in that, mo in that moment and you have such strong emotion. It can be really hard sometimes to come up with a balanced thought that they're not always doing that thing because all of a sudden your mind is like, but there was this time and this time and this time and this time. And it, your mind when you're in that uh, state can like also filter for the evidence that makes it true. So I, I love what you said about trying to balance it. And I just want to acknowledge that, that can be a hard process and like take you a second to, to find it, especially when we're emotional. Absolutely. Especially because our brains are trained towards a negativity bias as mammals. <laughs> and so because of that, it is about retraining your brain. So you do have to give yourself a, a beat to figure it out, but in, in that same way, we our brains are really smart and we can create new neural pathways. And because we can create neural pathways, the more you work at it, the easier it gets. So if you put the time and effort into saying, I'm going to work at this, it's going to be hard in the beginning, it does get easier. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's also important to recognize that, yes, it's hard in the beginning to take the pause, think of the balanced thought snap the rubber band, remind yourself that part of it is negativity bias, but that as new neural pathways, and there's tons of research talking about how our brains can build neural pathways, start to build, it does get easier. It does get easier. I am someone that can, at the beginning of my relationship with my husband, if you're listening to the show, you know that he almost left me because I would get so angry a lot and he loved me and I loved him, but he was not on board with my expressions of anger as intensely and as frequently as they came up. And I was making a lot of assumptions about why he did what he did. And most of his assumption, most of my assumptions filtered back to he didn't care about me. Like that's usually the thought that triggered off a lot of them. And I would get really stuck there. And I had a really hard time coming out of it. And one of the tips I heard in one of Brene Brown's books, I don't remember which book it was but she talked about giving the most generous assumption like mm -hmm. if he does something I don't like I automatically go to it it means he doesn't care but if I gave him a generous assumption usually the most generous assumption I could come up with was taking his behavior at face value so he was late because he was late mm -hmm. or he didn't call because he forgot or his phone died like I really other possible explanations for his behavior that I hadn't considered and I had to really work on giving him a generous assumption I was only half bought in until one day I decided to go through this book called the anger control workbook. And they basically go through a very similar philosophy that people are doing the best they can. And they have you work through a scenario where like you messed up and like, why did you mess up? And that it walks you through like the, all the reasons because of all the things that happened that day, all the circumstances you went through, you ended up doing the behavior that you did. And that it really walks you through that in most cases, people are doing the best they can. So when I took together this exercise in the anger control workbook and what Brene Brown said about giving generous assumptions, I was able to see that I do not give a generous assumption. I give a catastrophic thinking error assumption about someone's intentions and behavior, and then I blow up. So I was able to see that one. And now over time, like you said, with practice and developing neural pathways, it doesn't mean I don't get hurt or frustrated or annoyed when I see behavior that... I don't like, but I'm able to approach it going, there's probably many explanations for the behavior I'm seeing. And I'm able to bring it up from a neutral, you called it mindful place and say, hey, like this happened, what happened? And hear his explanation before I jump down his throat. So it's for me, just having awareness of the thinking errors that there is other explanations for their behavior was like a huge work. But now it's, you know, we've been together eight years and now it's like pretty easy, but it was, it was not easy in the beginning. Exactly. I mean, changing a mindset 
and I mean, there's tons of research on this, but changing your mindset is hard. I mean, I, I would never, I, I mean, I say this in my book too, like this is hard work. <laughs> like if you're looking for something that's easy, this is not easy. But if you're willing to put in the work and the effort, there's a huge benefit be, and it's enormously liberating because then your neural pathways do change and then it does become easier and the outcome is amazing, just like you were saying. Um, so it, it does get much easier if you're willing to put in the hard work. Yeah. And the, the phrase that came up to me is like, what is hard in the beginning is easy in the end. If you, if you learn any new skill and you practice it over time, it's easier to do. Yeah. So, um, tell me a little bit about what social learning theory is and why does it explain how we bring in our own assumptions from our own history into the current relationships that we're in? So we were talking a little bit about this a minute ago, and that's the fact that we learn from our parents, you know, we model their behavior, we imitate our, their behavior, and we learn from what we see. So based on our family history and what we've learned from watching them and our interactions with them, that's what we go out into the world doing. So based on, you know, if, if what you were saying before, if a parent is late or depending on, on their you know, our interactions with them based on lateness, that's how we're going to go out into the world based on how, whether they, we have a voice with our families, we're going to feel like we're going to have our voice in our partnerships. If we feel like we've grown up in an abandoning family, then we may feel like we're going to be easily abandoned in our relationships. So if you think about it, some self-talk that could run through somebody's mind that's based on their history, not necessarily based on the current relationship or things like, uh, nobody listens to me anyway, so my opinions don't matter. What's the point of speaking up about my feelings? And in that situation, somebody might not feel like they want to have transparent communication with their partner because they have learned over time through modeling that talking doesn't matter. And that person's going to be reticent to have a conversation with their partner, despite how resentful they may be becoming in the relationship. Similarly, that might, there might be a person that is quicker to break up with a partner thinking, I'm going to break up with my partner because I know they're going to break up with me. If it's somebody that was brought up in an abandoning family where people are constantly being very rejecting. And right. so they're going to be like quicker on the trigger finger to, to break up with somebody because they feel very disposable. These things come from social learning theory, and it's just it's important for people to recognize that not everything is coming from the current relationship. A lot of things are coming from their past and to try to think about, is this actually coming from this person in the here and now, or is this something that's coming because I'm bringing it with me and in like a big backpack? Mm -hmm. And as you're saying this, I'm trying to think of like common reactions that my clients have had. And some people can jump on right on board and like, be like, oh yes, here's like an easy connection and an easy link. Yes. My parents didn't hear me. Like they would, children were made to be um, seen and not heard. And now it's hard for me to speak. Like some people that's really easy to access. Whereas other people, they're like, I don't know. I don't see how this connects. And it's, you know, unconscious. It could be in your family of origin. It could be in other places that you've learned this, but often it's the family of origin. And I, I think just like, if you're noticing this, maybe just be open to the possibility that there's something there or some feeling or some incident that was a really pivotal learning moment for you in childhood. And maybe it's there and maybe it's unconscious, like maybe it's not super easily accessible, but just let it float around and ponder that idea that you might've learned this somewhere. Absolutely. Like let it marinate that it's the possibility and it could have come from some other place other than your current relationship. It doesn't have to have been born in your current relationship. Yeah, it could have, but it's- but It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Okay. So the first part in your book that we covered is avoiding assumptions. The second of the six secrets is reducing people-pleasing behaviors. So I guess first and foremost, how are you defining people-pleasing behaviors? I think the most universally, universally acceptable definition of a people pleaser is somebody who gets their emotional needs satisfied through somebody else at the expense of their own needs or at the expense of their own desires. Um, I don't think there's anybody that's exempt from the possibility of becoming a people pleaser. I think that we're all at risk of becoming a people pleaser. Um, but the problem with it is that it can have 
a huge detriment to a relationship and to a person and can lead to a lot of resentment, and other psychological and physical problems. So it's, mm. it is a behavior that I think erodes the natural foundation of a relationship and is something that needs to be addressed. Hmm. Why are people, why do people engage in people pleasing behaviors? People engage in it as a way to um, protect themselves against feeling disposable or um, at risk of being abandoned in a relationship. They think that it increases the possibility of them being indispensable mm -hmm. because they believe that if they act in the service of others, then they that secures their role in a relationship. The problem is that when they're trying to secure their role in a relationship by acting in the service of others, it backhandedly decreases their belief in their inherent lovability because they believe that people are hanging around them because of the acts that they serve for others as opposed to for who they are as people. Mm. And that's a huge detriment to, to the their confidence, um, self-respect, and it creates a lot of self-doubt because if, if at some point they're not able to say yes to the things that everybody's asking of them, they feel like the people around them will desert them because they don't really believe that they're lovable enough to stay around for. Well, that's pretty sad to not believe you're love enough, lovable enough for the people to stay around for. Um, so what's, what other impacts does it have on you? If you're a people pleaser, like what are the, some of the health consequences or the mental health consequences you might experience because you're doing so much people pleasing? So besides resentment, the psychological effects can be frustration, anger, addictions, or even eating disorders can be some of the impacts of, you know, for people pleasers. From a physical perspective, there's research showing that it can cause uh, migraine or tension headaches, back pain, stomach pain, high blood pressure, other stress-related sy sy symptoms. I, I mean, I've seen it cause a, a lot of different things in my practice, both psychological and physical symptoms, because I've, you know, there's so many people that engage in this, in this behavior. And it's not just in really in, in love relationships, people do it with colleagues, people do it with other authority figures, people do it with their friends. I mean, people are doing it with every, like so many pe family members, people are doing it with so many people. And so these kinds of psychological and physical symptoms come up in whatever relationships you're doing it in. Mm -hmm. So is there ever a time where people pleasing is helpful? There's a difference between, there's a difference between people pleasing, which I would put in a codependent category and interdependent relationships. When I say that I want to reduce people pleasing behaviors, which is what I talk about in my book, people think you don't want me to be a good friend. And of course I want you to be a good friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I want everybody to be good friend. What I don't want is people to subserve each other to other people, rescue people that don't need to be rescued, do things for people that are going to make them feel that resentful or frustrated or vacuum clean up another person's feelings or lose themselves in another person. So I think that there's a difference between that and being a good friend. I also talk in my book about the fact that there's always situations in which we have to do things we don't want to do in order to meet a social contract. And, and it's very important to remember that there are things in life that, you know, it, if I show up at the house with groceries in my car, of course, nobody wants to run out to my car and take the groceries out of my car, but you need to do that because that's a social contract. You know, there are things that people don't want to do. Like people have to attend, unfortunately, people have to attend funerals. It's the right thing to do. People don't want to necessarily like do that, but it's part of a social contract. We're, we're social beings. And if you want people to show up for you, you have to show up for them. And so there, th those are part of the social contract. So I think that I do talk about the fact that you can't just because you're going to not, you know, be a people pleaser anymore, abandon everything you don't want to do. That's not the point of reducing people pleasing behaviors. The point of it is that you can ask yourself more questions about what you do and don't want to do and feel that the people around you will accept that as opposed to just, you know, freely deciding that you have to do everything people tell you to do or else they're going to leave. Mm. 
well, I think there's some really good distinctions there. Like, yes, we are going to have social contracts with people. And yes, you are going to have to do things at times you don't want to do, but there's like a fine line between that is what you do because you're in relationship versus that's what you're doing. And you're feeling resentful all the time. You're doing it out of fear that someone's going to leave or shame or guilt or something like that, which is a hard one to tease out sometimes, but also very important. Yes. And I, I developed something that I call a resentment check-in. And the way that I tell people to do it is that let's say that you're being asked to do a lot of things for somebody and you're not sure whether you should say yes to it or delegate the request, edit the request or say no to it. What you do is you ask yourself, let's say that this request is never reciprocated, never appreciated and never valued by this person. And then you think about that and you think about how it feels in your body where it never to be reciprocated, valued, appreciated. Do you feel a twinge anywhere in your body of that idea? And if you don't, great, do it. And if you do feel a twinge somewhere in your body thinking about the fact that that's never going to happen, then that would be a time when you decide, okay, maybe I want to delegate or edit this request or figure out a way to say no, because now you're trying to be more honest with yourself about what things you want to do and what things would be better for you not to do. Mm, well, I love this resentment check-in. It reminds me of something that happened really recently um, in my, my in my friendship. So at the time of this recording, I'm pregnant and my, I'm starting to get back pain. And I went it's summer, also at the time of this recording, and I went to a cottage with some girlfriends and I'm the only one who has a car. So we live in a we live in Toronto, so it's very common for people to not have cars, but I have a car. And this is our, uh, so I had to, you know, leave my house, go pick them up. And by the time I got back to my house to drive to where the cottage was, it like was already an hour and a half of me in the car. And on the way home, I was starting to get some back pain. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to have been in the car for four hours by the time we get to my house. And then by the time I drive them into the city, drop them off and drive back to my house, depending on traffic, that's going to take anywhere from an hour to two and a half hours extra on my back hurts. And with my friends, I mean, I set up boundaries sometimes, but I, you know, thankfully I have some really good friends where I usually don't have to set up too, like too many boundaries. I feel like I don't, I don't get asked to do a lot of things that I feel resentful about. So I have a pretty good social circle. This is one of the first times I'm thinking I'm going to be super resentful if I drive them back into the city and my back hurts and like my time, like I was, I was kind of sitting there thinking about it and I could feel this twinge, but I'm like, they're going to be upset if I, if I don't drive them back into the city. And just thinking about my friends, my two like best girlfriends being upset with me sitting in the car, I was like, oh man, this is a real, this is a real doozy. Cause I really am like, with my husband, I don't, I, for whatever reason, I now care less if he's upset with me. I have the faith that, you know, we're going to, if I, if he's upset with me for a second in, you know, an hour, he's not going to be that upset with me anymore. So I don't really care about upsetting him. It's fine. But my two girlfriends, I really I was like, oh man, like, I don't know if I've ever said no to something they assumed I was going to do or changed my mind in a way that would inconvenience them. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wow. And I was astounded with how hard this was internally. Like I kept being like, okay, at 3.30, I will tell them I am not going to drive them home and I want them to Uber from my house. And then 3.30, I was like, at 3.45, I will tell them that I am not going to drive them home and I need them to Uber from my house. And then finally at four o'clock, I was like, Okay, 4.30. So then finally at 4.30, I told them. And they both responded. They responded favorably outwardly, but I'm making all kinds of assumptions about the tone of their voice and what they would have preferred. And because I tried to not people please, then I was all in my assumptions, but what they actually meant by the way they responded. And I had to check myself and be like, well, <laughs> at face value, they said, no, okay, sure. Let me see if I can get my boyfriend to pick us up. I was like, just take it at face value. They're also grown women who can tell me if they're upset. And like, they may have been, they may have been inconvenienced. It may have been frustrating. It may have been all those things. But what I had to do in that moment is prioritize that, you know, I'm six months, six and a bit months pregnant. My back hurts. And like, it is fine for my back to hurt. And it's fine to say no. But I could not, like, I was like, wow, <laughs> that was hard. And I just thought of my clients and how, 
hard it can be when we're starting to set up little experiments to say no or stop people pleasing, like how hard it can truly be. Because for the most part, I wouldn't say I'm a big people pleasing person. But in this moment, I was like, well, I, should, I certainly have it in me sometimes, that's for sure. And I found it very challenging to go back on something I said I was going to do. So anyway, that's my story about people pleasing. Exactly. Um, so Adam, see, that's a great and impressive story. Like that's, a, I mean, because it is so hard and you're so right that it is then very much followed by assumptions, which is why I do talk about assumptions and then people pleasing because, because they are so interrelated that you did finally, you stuck, stuck up for yourself set a boundary. And then it's not surprising that the assumptions followed, which is why then you'd need to know how to deal with the assumptions that are going to follow. Mm. Um, because that, that makes sense because setting a boundary would be scary. And then it's not surprising that then you would wonder what everybody was thinking about you, which you handled really well. But I mean, I think that it's, it's really hard that you wonder what they're going to think and are they going to think any less of you, which is where I come into the whole inherent livability thing. And it's not necessarily for you that you feel like your friends are going to, you know, love you any less, but for a lot of people, you know, worrying that people are going to think less of them, love them less or whatever, if they don't do the things that they feel like, you know, people want of them is a big challenge in their lives. So it's, it's hard. It really is it's hard. It's super hard. So all of y'all out there thinking about, Stopping people pleasing. I, you know, I'm a therapist. I talk about this with people all the time, but given the right set of circumstances, it is so hard to set a new boundary or to try a new thing. And it can really be very, very challenging to the point where I was sitting there thinking, you know what? It's fine. It's just another hour and a half to two hours. I can endure it. And then I was like, no, if there's any time in my life where I'm going to set this boundary, it's going to be when I'm pregnant and actually in pain, not just because I don't want to. But to be fair, I think the good thing is that you did that. And if you hadn't, I would imagine that if you had done the extra hour, hour and a half of driving, you would have been so frustrated and resentful, not just at them, but at yourself also for not having set the boundary that this is why I think that it's important. Like, yes, it was upsetting to you and you had all these assumptions to deal with and everything. But in the end, I think that I would imagine you felt some self-respect for having held the boundary as opposed to not having done it because it might've felt like it was the easier way to do the extra hour and a half of driving. And you would have felt more resentful and less self-respect for having just gone along. And they would never have known that you were doing any of those things, even though you would have felt resentful towards them and less self-respect towards yourself. This way, you probably felt more self-respect and no resentment towards them, even though you had a hard time dealing with the assumptions. So in the end, I think that what you did would make you feel more liberated, even though it was harder. Totally true. I left that being like, yes, that was good for me. I did a good thing. And it's okay if my friends were upset or not upset. And outwardly, I kept having to look at their outward behavior. Outwardly, they were fine to me, even if they had a feeling. And I had to be like, it was fine. It was everything is totally okay. And I felt better in the end. And I did have self-respect as a result of that. So very true. Yes. <laughs> so people are noticing, maybe they like done our little resentment check-in and they're feeling a twinge. Maybe I'm doing something that I, maybe I said yes to something where I meant no, or, you know, I'm feeling resentful. I'm doing more than I, that feels energetically good for me. What are some tips for overcoming some people pleasing behaviors? So I have a lot of I have a lot of techniques that you can use for overcoming people pleasing behaviors. One of them is to learn to love your own company because I do believe it's, it is tied into a feeling of inherent lovability. And I think that people who are people pleasers tend to have a difficult time being alone. One way that you can do that is to practice going to a movie or a restaurant by yourself. I always recommending people go to movies by themselves. I practiced when I started to learn not to be a people pleaser, going to movies by myself. Now, my favorite thing is to go to movies in the theater by myself. You can, I think it's important to practice going shopping alone and buying something for yourself without opinion shopping among a lot of people, which pieces of whatever you're buying, you know, to purchase. I think it's important to make a, ma a major decision for yourself if that's possible. Also without opinion shopping. 
And another important tip is to not make uh to not break a plan with yourself. I think we too frequently make a plan with ourselves and break a plan with ourselves. If we get an, an offer to do something with a friend, we find it the most easy to break a plan with ourselves when we would never break a plan with a friend. So if we've made a plan with ourselves to exercise or go to a movie with ourselves or something like that, it's easy for us to break a plan that we make with ourselves in a way we wouldn't do with a friend. I I know somebody who had made a plan to go to a movie with herself, which was awesome. And she ran into a group of friends at the movie theater. They were going to a different movie. And they said to her, don't go to a movie by yourself. Come to the movie we're going to see with us. And to her credit, she, she said, no, you know, I'm very excited about the movie that I'm going to go see and I'm going to go see it, but I would love to hang out with you guys on a different day. She felt really good about herself. And I think that that's a great example of somebody. She held her boundary and she really wanted to practice doing something by herself. So that is a, a way that I think people can work on reducing people-pleasing behaviors. Um, another technique that I recommend to people is not subserving your needs to somebody else, which is delegating, editing requests like we talked about, and doing the resentment check-ins. A lot of People may notice, I think it's not uncommon that people feel in their lives like there's an inequitable distribution of tasks in their homes where people, some people feel like the burden is, is inequitable in childcare or household responsibilities or finances. And it's difficult to have a conversation about that because they're trying to avoid conflict. But these conversations are very important or what ends up happening is that you continue to take on the burden of the thing that you're already feeling burdened by because you're having a difficult time saying, delegating, editing, or saying no. Just continue to say yes and yes and yes, which is where the resentment check-in that I mentioned before comes in. If you are already feeling like it's inequitable, but get asked to do even more, do the resentment check-in. Feel if it feels like it's even becoming more. And then pause, have a conversation, talk to your partner about a way to even it out and, and make it a little bit fairer in terms of the distribution to reduce the resentment between the two of you, because otherwise it's just going to create more divisiveness in your relationship. Uh, the other thing that I recommend is to be compassionate with each other instead of vacuuming up each other's emotions. A lot of times what we do is we vacuum clean up each other's emotions, trying to feel the same way that our partner feels. If they're sad, we feel like we need to feel sad. If they're angry, we need to feel angry with them or for them. It's really good to be a holding space for our partner instead of necessarily feeling with them. We can be more effective if we are a, a, like a holding vessel or holding space for their emotions so that they can vent to us without feeling like we have to feel their emotions with them. And the, the other recommendation that I have is that interdependence, and I alluded to this before, is a really positive, strong way to have a relationship instead of codependence. In an interdependent relationship, you would ha imagine having a two-lane highway. And in the two-lane highway, the two of you are each in your own lane and you each have your own interests and likes and you don't necessarily share in everything. In a codependent relationship, you are in the same lane all the time and you feel like you need to do everything together, share everything together and be together all the time. So because the cars in the one in the both of your cars are in the same lane, your cars are constantly crashing into each other and creating a lot of conflict. When you're in an interdependent relationship in two lanes, you merge into each other's lanes very organically when you want to share an activity, but you go back into your own lanes when you are doing your own thing. I have clients where one of them likes golf, the other one likes theater, but they both like kayaking. So when he wants to play golf, he goes to play golf. She supports that. She loves that. When she wants to go to the theater, he supports that. And when they want to go kayaking, they merge into each other's lanes. And when they're kayaking or going to movies or dinner together, they talk about the activities that they each like and support each other in it. And it brings breadth and depth to the relationship since they can support each other in what each other likes. And it's created a very, very strong foundation in their relationship. Interdependent relationships tend to be very, very strong, even though they're not in sync and doing every single thing together. Mm. One a take, 
the things that I find that clients have a hard time doing and and for everybody, honestly, not just clients, for all of us, me included, is saying no to people in all these situations, whether it's compassion or not being as compassionate or, I mean, not being um, vacuum cleaning up each other's emotions or the codependence. And so I'm going to give some examples of how you can say no, but mindfully. I would really love to be able to help you, but unfortunately, I'm already committed at that time. That would be an example of how to say a statement in order to maintain interdependence. Um, What you're going through sounds so hard. I love you and I'm here for you. That's a way to talk if you're not trying to vacuum clean up somebody's emotions. That activity sounds like a lot of fun. I don't think it's exactly for me, but I'd love to do something else with you. Again, a statement you could make if you're trying to be in an interdependent relationship instead of codependent. That's not a good night for me. I'm really tired. How about next Friday instead? That would be an example of not subserving yourself to somebody else's needs. Thank you for offering to help me with that, but I would rather do that by myself. And that's an example of how to talk in an interdependent relationship, not a codependent relationship. Those are great examples. So we've talked about two of the secrets from your book, and there are four more secrets that people could learn about. So if people have loved learning about avoiding assumptions and stopping people pleasing and want more happiness in their life and in relationships, where can they follow you, find you, learn more about you, get this book? The, my website is gutmanpsychology.com and I'm on Instagram at gutman underscore psychology, but the book is Beyond Happiness, The Six Secrets of Lifetime Satisfaction, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And so those are the places that you can find me and get the book. And hopefully people will find me, communicate with me, <laughs> enjoy the book. Nice. So we'll link those to the show notes so people can find your book on Amazon or probably wherever like books are sold. And uh, certainly we'll link your website and your Instagram. So if there's one thing you're hoping that people take away from this today, what's one message you'd love to leave them with? Is that it's the most important thing is that to I really want to turn the conversation around so that people are focusing on satisfaction and not happiness. I think the buzzword for so many years has been happy, happy, happy about, about everything, not just, I mean, individuals, but relationships also. And happiness is not a sustainable emotion. It's a fleeting emotion. And I want to, I want to have a um, change in the dialogue and a call to action to change the conversation that people should be talking about satisfaction in all aspects of their life. I think that it changes what the brain is looking for and it can liberate your brain to wake up in the morning to look for something that's more achievable. And if you're looking for something that's achievable and that your brain can actually succeed in doing, then we might be able to reduce some of the feelings of existential despair that everybody's feeling because your brain can end the day saying, I actually did achieve that. I am satisfied, content, and peaceful today Um, because your brain's not going to be like, well, I wasn't happy every minute of the day. So if I can leave your audience with like search for satisfaction, not happiness, not a constant state of happy, that would be great. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.